Good to see you guys. Welcome everyone to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. We're so happy you're able to join us on this beautiful afternoon, this Saturday afternoon. It's a Saturday. I'm wow. Of Iceland. Yeah, right. really are. Oh, where am I? All right. Jonathan, good to see you. How are you doing? Jonathan? And uh -oh. Jonathan's frozen. Man. Let me say hi to you, Stephen. How are you doing? I, I hope that when I say hi, I won't freeze up or something because we are like 0 for 3 on things today. Oh. Hi, Drew. I've been doing well today. I hope you can hear and see me, and I hope it persists for the next 45 minutes. I do too. Jonathan, now I see you're no longer frozen. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Okay. See what happens when uh, the cat's away, the mice will play, and we get in trouble. <laughs> Well, we're glad you're able to join us. If you're coming in on the uh, Zoom app, we hope you would use the Q&A or chat uh, box to give us your comments and thoughts as we go through today's topic. Coming in on the, um, let's see, today we're coming in on your Facebook page, right, Stephen? That's correct. Good, 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 good. So if you're coming in on the Facebook page, everyone there, please use the comment box. We'll be monitoring things there. Keep in mind, Facebook has got about a 15 to 18 second delay. Um, when we're talking and when you actually hear it. So we don't want you to think we're, we're behind schedule with you. Um, we have a, a very interesting conversation or discussion going on today here. Stephen's going to be talking about, uh, I guess I could say it this way, the, uh, there's a connection with uh, Ezra slash Nehemiah. And this was be during or right after the captivity. And there's a, some interesting connections there. And then this other... Um, Hello, Zerubbabel, is that how you say it? That's right. It's a mouthful, but that is uh, his name. Yeah, a lot about him. So why don't you go ahead and take it over, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go back and forth, because I'm sure I'm going to have some questions for you. Sure. Well, uh, I've been doing a little bit of work on Ezra and Nehemiah recently, so this is, uh, I'm going to share my screen here. And we're just going to kind of set up the, the background here, of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, this is a part of Bible history that, at least for me, I would we'd study, you know, about the kingdom of Israel and then the United Kingdom and divided kingdom. And then they went into captivity and then things get real fuzzy until Jesus. I'm like, there's this period of history where like, what even happened during all that? And this is really where Ezra and Nehemiah come in. This is, this is the, the connection between uh, the captivity and then what happens to set the stage for Jesus coming uh, in the New Testament? I thought it was and, just me, Stephen, that was fuzzy on all of this period. <laughs> no, for me, for a long time, uh, it was definitely uh, the way it was for me. So what we're going to do is kind of recap real quick uh, our Bible timeline. And I will go ahead and put a plug in here for Scott's 3MinuteBibleStudy.com. Um, he goes through the whole Bible timeline in three minutes. And uh, it's excellent. A um, lot of information in three minutes, but um, it's pretty cool that you can get the whole Bible timeline in three minutes. So I'm using this graphic here from uh, his presentation. And uh, really the story of the Bible is the story of God and his people uh, all from, from the beginning. God creates the world and he creates his first people, Adam and Eve. And of course, sin breaks that relationship. And the story of Genesis is really this whole first line What's interesting about this is especially these promises right here that God makes to a man named Abraham. He says, that, I'm going to give your descendants a land. I'm going to make them a great nation. And I'm going to make your family a blessing to all the nations 
of the world. And in some ways, the rest of the Old Testament is a playing out of these promises that God made to one man and his family that will ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus. And so we see that the nation gets started actually in captivity. Uh, they multiply and become a great nation when they're in slavery to the Egyptians. And so that's what's represented over here. And famously, Moses, let my people go, <laughs> uh, is sent by God to deliver the nation of Israel from captivity. They come out through the Red Sea, they come to Mount Sinai, and God makes a covenant with them. And what's really interesting is, we'll look at this in just a minute, there were some things in this covenant when God starts a relationship, not just with Abraham, but now with the whole group of the nation of Abraham's family. He tells them, hey, if you guys will listen to me, if you will obey me and love me, you'll get to dwell in my land. I'll take care of you. I'll defend you. Things are going to be good. But if you ignore me and you rebel against me, I'm going to kick you out of the land. But if you'll repent and come back, then I'll bring you back to the land. And that's really going to be the story that happens because uh, God brings them into the land during the days of Joshua. And after that, things don't go so well with the judges. Things get a little better with the kings. But then with the divided kingdom, things really go downhill. It gets so bad in the northern kingdom that Assyria is sent and they go into captivity. It's a little bit like going back to Egypt in some ways. Um, Judah lasts a little bit longer. God's constantly sending prophets through this time period, begging with them to repent. But eventually Judah will not repent and they go into captivity in Babylon. So that gets us set up for the captivity and then the books we're going to study. True. Yeah, what's, what's their primary sin? What's the major thing they're co that's causing them all these problems, the, the primary one? It, it's a lot of them, but idolatry is the big thing, um, that they are being like the nations. It's peer pressure from uh, the other nations around them that causes them to turn away from the one true God to worship these idols. So it's kind of, I like the way Scott has it on the chart here. Joshua brought them into the land the first time, but Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah are going to be the second coming into the land. <laughs> I wouldn't call it a conquest because they're really not coming back to nations that are real strong, uh, but they are, they come back to the land again um, and they're going to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah is going to help rebuild the walls, but it's after this difficult time, this dark time in Israel's history of the captivity where it looks like God's promises have failed. And now he's keeping his promises by bringing them back to the land and getting things ready for the Messiah to come. Um, so that's kind of the big overview of that. But I want to read real quick um, from the book of Second Chronicles. Um, if you're following along in your Bible, uh, you might read along here. And this is the, the end of the divided kingdom and the captivity that we're reading about here. Uh, I'm going to read from Second Chronicles 36, uh, verses 15 through 21. Um, actually, Jonathan, would you mind reading that for us? Second Chronicles 36, uh, verses 15 through 21. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed the, their young men with the sword 
in the house and their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took them into exile into ba in Babylon, those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishments of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the words of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Okay. This is a really a heartbreaking passage at the end of Chronicles, describing the effective end of the, the kingdom of Israel. And it's not for lack of effort on God's part. Um, in verses 15 and 16, he describes how the prophets over and over were pleading with the people to come back. And notice in verse 15 that it was the compassion of God that sent the prophets to them. The prophets get kind of a bad rep. Uh, for being, you know, like fire and brimstone preachers, and, and, and they were preaching God's judgment coming. But it was because God wanted to avoid having to send the quote-unquote fire and brimstone um, that he sent the prophets. And he sends them over and over until, it says in verse 16, until there was no remedy. Um, God's, he tried everything he knew, and they did not repent. And so he sends them into captivity for 70 years. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. That's to fulfill a prophecy. God told them ahead of time what the punishment was going to be and how long they would be in, I almost hate to use this term, but in time out, basically. You're going to be, it's a punishment for 70 years. You're going to be taken away from the land and then you're going to come back. But notice here the end of Second Chronicles. Um, I'm going to read Second Chronicles 36, uh, the last couple verses. But if you're reading along, I want you to read in Ezra chapter 1. And just start reading in Ezra 1 1 while I read from 2 Chronicles and see how similar this is. Uh, second, I'm reading from 2 Chronicles 36 22. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. It's basically word for word, the beginning of the book of Ezra. Um, so we have the connection point here that God is fulfilling what he said he was going to do when this Persian king Cyrus makes a decree. Now, again, uh, we can flip to a few passages here to show just how much this was outlined. But in Jeremiah chapter 25, uh, Jeremiah was prophesying at the very end of the kingdom of Judah before the Babylonians came and took them captive. But in Jeremiah 25, they were told how long this was going to be. Um, Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12. And back in Jeremiah 25, verse 1, we know that this happens in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Joash. So again, this is before the fact, God tells them ahead of time. Uh, verses 11 and 12 of Jeremiah 25. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. 
Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So God says 70 years, they're in captivity for 70 years. Then on the return side, God also had made a previous prophecy about who it was that would issue the return command. In Isaiah chapter 44, there's actually a whole section here that's devoted to talking about Cyrus. And of course, this is, Isaiah's writing around 700 BC. This is a couple hundred years before any of this happens, uh, before the Persian Empire is even around. But read with me the very end of Isaiah 44. Um, and uh, let's read Isaiah 44, verse 28, and then 45, verse 1, the very next verse. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. Uh, God said, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in timeout for 70 years. And they're going to come back out, and I'll name the king who's going to do it. It's going to be Cyrus, king of the Persians. It just shows you how much control God has in the kingdoms of men. To people looking from the outside, it'd be like, this is chaos. One nation's defeating another and all this craziness. And God's like, listen, I know what's going to happen. And here's the king who's going to tell you to come back. Um, and really, all of this is a fulfillment of what God told them like several hundred years before, about 1400 BC, when God said that I'm going to make a covenant with you. And if you will listen to me, things will go well. But if you don't listen to me, things are going to go terribly and you're going to go into captivity. He said this back in the book of Leviticus. I mean, going back to the third book of the Bible, all of this was laid out. Um, if you look at... Um, Verse, uh, for instance, verse 33, this is Leviticus 26, 33, um, God speaking says, and I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. But then skip down to verse 40, for instance, Leviticus 26, 40, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, uh, look at verse 42. Uh, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. And so um, they're going to be able to come back to this land. Um, he will restore them and keep his promises. So one amazing thing about this whole story of after the captivity is how faithful God is despite Despite the unfaithfulness of the people. Um, do you have comments or thoughts to add to, add to that, Drew? A couple of thoughts. The, uh, the, the specific naming of Cyrus, what was it, how many hundred years or so before? About a couple hundred years before all this happens. Yeah, so that is clearly uh, the Lord declaring this is who he is. This, this, this is not made up by man. This is the Lord speaking. He knows that. The other thing, though, not related to that was when you said that uh, he's going to return to, to the land. He always keeps his promise and he carries it out. 
some people today that say that that didn't happen yet, that they didn't really return from the land. But isn't this part of the story you're talking about? Yeah, this is the story of Israel. And when they come back from the land, uh, come back to the land from, from Persia. And it's, uh, it's powerful to see how, I mean, they're never as strong as they were before um, on a physical level but that God is paving the way for the Messiah to come. He's paving the way for Jesus in all of this. So let's look at the outline of Ezra and Nehemiah, um, because really you have really the whole return from captivity story in three parts. Uh, Jonathan? Um, yeah, really quick before we get into that, there's just a question I think about the dating of Isaiah. Um, can we be sure um, that it was around 700 BC when, when Isaiah actually prophesied about Cyrus? Um, you want to talk a little bit about Isaiah and the time period that he prophesied and the dating of that? Sure, yeah. So most of the prophets are dated by, and, I, and I'm not sure the nature of this question, if it's more of like a um, you know, like Bible evidences question or if it's more of a just Bible knowledge question. Um, but as far as like dating the prophets, you can look at the beginning, usually each of the prophets, and they'll tell you based on the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah when they're writing. And so Isaiah 1 and verse 1 says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and it is Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And so these kings would have been around 700 BC or so. I know there's a little bit of debate over exact dates, but um, if we're dating it by internal evidence from the book, we see that Isaiah is prophesying well before the captivity. Uh, if we want to get into another study on uh, Bible evidences and archaeology and things like that, that's a good study for another time. But as far as like establishing biblically when Isaiah is writing, Isaiah 1.1 gives us uh, our anchor point. So I hope, I hope that's helpful. So coming to Ezra and Nehemiah, there are three main um, sections of these books. Uh, Ezra chapters 1 through 6, uh, Ezra chapters 7 through 10, and then the book of Nehemiah. Um, it's kind of helpful to understand that Ezra and Nehemiah um, in the Hebrew Old Testament, um, the, in the Jewish Bible, they were originally one scroll. Um, and so we have them as two separate books, but it appears that they were originally written as one book altogether with three big movements in the book with some pretty big time gaps. Um, again, if we were writing, we might write and fill in the gaps. But one thing you learn about the Bible is sometimes like you'll be reading along and there'll just be these big jumps in time uh, that happen. It's easy for us to miss that if we're not paying close attention. So these three big sections, um, Ezra 1 through 6, has to do with a guy named Zerubbabel, uh, who Drew mentioned at the beginning, uh, as a bit of a mouthful of a name. But Zerubbabel is the first leader of God's people when Cyrus, who was prophesied, when he gives the command to go back, Zerubbabel is the one who leads the way. And the first item of business is that they need to rebuild the temple. That was what was destroyed by the Babylonians when they came in. And the first thing they need to do is rebuild the temple. The second wave that comes back from captivity in Ezra 7 through 10 is going to be Ezra himself. This is one of those kind of funny situations where the whole book is named after Ezra, but it would be better named Zerubbabel Ezra <laughs> um, because uh, 
Ezra doesn't even show up at all in the book until chapter seven. Um, it's a little bit like first and second Samuel where like, you know, Samuel shows up at like the beginning but then like two books get, get named after him. Um, even though he's not really the main guy. I mean, they're mostly about David. Um, it's kind of funny. Uh, and then Nehemiah is the leader, uh, as you might guess, in the book of Nehemiah. And they're aiming on rebuilding the walls of the city. Ezra came to reestablish the law. Um, so if you don't remember anything else about like the overview of these books, as far as like what actually happens in them, uh, this is a really helpful three-part outline just to look at. Okay, these six chapters are about Zerubbabel. Uh, these four chapters are about Ezra, and the book of Nehemiah is about Nehemiah. Um, do you have anything to add to to that before we move on? I find it interesting. You said that from chap. You said I want to just repeat what you said. Chapters one and six, the, dis the time between chapter six and seven is 70 years? About 70 years, 60 or 70. Um, so what we're going to see with these is there are decrees that happen from the different Persian rulers, uh, Cyrus in 538. That is the year that Cyrus said, all right, Israelites, if you want to go back to Jerusalem, you can go. Um, and it's going to be about... 70 years later, let me get over here, 458 um, is the year that Artaxerxes is going to make the next proclamation for them to go back. And so that's a big jump in time between chapter six and chapter seven. And again, uh, if you're just reading along, uh, you'll notice that it'll say, um, now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, and then goes on talking about this. And if you're not paying attention real close to verse one, you're like, Okay, there's another king, but like, oh, like 70 years have passed. This is like a next generation of people. Um, so uh, that's helpful to, to note if you're someone who writes in your Bible, you might note the, the dates. It goes from 538 when all this begins. Now, this covers a time period going down into 520. And really, the temple is finished in about the year 516, 515. Um, so there's a big gap uh, that happens between this section and this section. So the first section, and this is just interesting when we think about rebuilding projects, um, it can be really challenging when you're first getting a project going. Um, they've been in Babylon for 70 years and they come back and now they, they finally have some momentum. Okay, like we're back in the land, we're gonna build a temple and they get going, but it's kind of a mixed reaction when they begin. Um, let's read from Ezra chapter 3 for just a minute. And um, Jonathan, would you mind taking us through uh, Ezra 3, uh, 10 through 13? Mm -hmm. yeah, so Ezra 3, 10. <clears throat> and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the, Le the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the direction of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to God, for he is good, for his steadfast love for, uh, endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord, because the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, 
though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So they lay the foundation of this new temple, but there's two very different reactions that happen. What, what's, what's people's reaction to this? Some seem to be very happy and joyous about it. Other people started crying. Yeah. So it's really interesting to see that, who was it that was crying about it? The people who had seen the temple, the Solomon's temple, the magnificence of the first one. Yeah, and they could tell, even just from the foundation, man, this is, this ain't like it used to be. Um, this is a really a step backwards as far as the grandeur of the physical building. And that really sums up a bit of this time in Israel's history is it's a bit of, it's a bit underwhelming. Um, there's some good progress being made. God is working. But a lot of times it really does not live up to the people's expectations. And let me just say, just as a practical note, there's going to be times as we do the Lord's work when things are going to happen that are really kind of underwhelming to us or really kind of anticlimactic. And that does not mean that God is not working. Um, it doesn't mean that God's will is not being done. Um, just because it, it, the work seems smaller or less significant than we dreamed it would be, my expectations are not the guideline for God's work. Uh, God can work if it impresses me, and God can work if it doesn't impress me. And that is a big theme in these books, is God's work is still going on, even when it may not look so great to me right now. True? They had instructions uh, from the first one. There were people that were appointed to supervise it, but the supervisors apparently were not going to the original pattern. Is that what you'd be saying? You know, that is interesting. They don't build it to the exact specifications uh, of the first temple. Now, they had a lot more instructions with the tabernacle, to be sure. Um, that they're not constructing a mobile building here, they're constructing a physical building. And so it may be that there weren't the same level of instructions given for the temple. Um, Solomon builds the temple, and man, I mean, he has a lot more resources, I think, than the people have coming out of captivity. So it may be that they're just doing the best they can do with what they have, um, because they really, I mean, the people have been decimated. They're nowhere near the nation that they were when they were destroyed. So in other words, the Lord was not uh, condemning them or criticizing them for it. It's just that some people were crying internally because of the difference? I think so. It's not that uh, this was against God's will. He's going to use this temple. Ultimately, this will be the temple that Jesus visits um, in the New Testament. Now, there'll be some expansions made on it by Herod later on. But um, yeah, this is, uh, I don't think this is against God's will, the way they do it here. They're just weeping because they remember the glory days. And uh, mm. this is not the same. So to add insult to injury, uh, in chapter four, and really going in here, there's a whole bunch of different ways that the, the work is opposed. Um, they tell some lies about the people, and the work has to stop not long after it starts. Um, from the year 530 to the year 520 or so, for 10 years, they have to stop building the house. And how discouraging is that when you finally get momentum going on a new project and then you have to stop? And it's like, oh, this would just be so discouraging. 
mm -hmm. uh, for the people during that time. But then in chapter five, and this is a cool connection with some of the prophetic books, um, God sends Haggai and Zechariah to come and to help encourage the people to get going again. And they have very different ways of doing that. Um, Haggai is the short little book. Zechariah is a very long book of visions, but they're both encouraging the people and strengthening the people to do the work. So in chapter six, the temple is finally finished. They do finish what they set out to do and they celebrate the Passover. But one thing that's really interesting and is a bit anticlimactic is that when they finally finish the temple, if you've read the Bible up to this point, what happened when they finished the tabernacle? What was like the big exciting thing when they finally finished that at the end of Exodus? Yeah, so whenever they finally um, finished building the tabernacle and all the furniture and putting it in, God's glory came and, and filled it, the cloud, and so nobody could go into it. And uh, uh, it's just a, a very visual picture of God is here dwelling with the people. Yes. And then when Solomon built the temple, uh, you know, hundreds of years later, what happens with the temple? Same thing. God's glory Same thing. fills it. The cloud of God's glory fills the temple. They rebuild the temple. Now that they've come back from captivity. And what happens? Nothing. Nothing. There's no word spoken about the glory of the Lord coming and filling this temple. And that is anticlimactic it's like okay we've come back we've finished the house and now where's god and, and so that would have been really challenging now the text doesn't you know spell all that out but something i think is interesting about this is i think there's a foreshadowing here again of jesus the temple has been built and god is going to come into this temple but he's not going to come in the same way that he came the first two times mm -hmm. he's going to enter this temple in the person of jesus and when John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the father, that's, that's Exodus language. That, that's glory, the cloud of glory language. Like Jesus is God's glory in flesh come to dwell among us and he comes to his temple. Uh, so I think that's kind of cool that God's glory will fill this temple but not until Jesus comes. Any thoughts or comments there on Ezra 1 through 6 in the time of Zerubbabel? All right, so the, the next one is a lot shorter. I know we're running short on time here. Um, so Artaxerxes gives the decree, and again, big gap here between these two sections. But in chapter 7, we have Artaxerxes saying, hey, you can go back as well. And let me just note, I love this verse describing Ezra's mindset. Um, Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10. Uh, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. You notice the three things that Ezra set his heart to do? What's the first one? You study it. Study it and then? Do it, carry it do out. Do it and then? Teach it to others. And that's a fantastic pattern for us. Um, before we are teaching or, you know, doing what we think we need to do, we need to study God's word first. We need to know what God has said and study it carefully. And then before we teach it to other people, we need to practice what we preach. We need to do God's word and be people who are living examples of it. And then as we have opportunity, we need to teach it to other people. So I, I love Ezra 710 as far as like just describing Ezra's character. 
it just made me think of something. The New Testament talks about a teacher is a, under double judgment or more scrutiny. Yeah, James, James 3, 1 says that, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, uh, for as teachers will incur stricter judgment. And so maybe this is applying that this is one of your requirements. Yep. Teachers don't need to play fast and loose with God's word. They need to be careful students yeah. and careful doers of the word, not just hearers, but doers of the word. So Ezra, um, there's a little bit more detail about the trip back in the, in the second section here where Ezra comes back. In chapter 8, it talks about the provisions made for the trip back. And the king actually offers them some help, some protection. But Ezra has told him, listen, our God's going to take care of us. And so Ezra's embarrassed to take the help from the king. And he prays and fasts with the people for God's protection. And God does protect them on the way back. But then when Ezra gets back, things are bad. <laughs> things have, he, he teaches the law, but they immediately find out that the people have sinned a lot. And one of the biggest things that's happened is they've intermarried with the people of the land. And this has always been something in Israel's past that got them into big trouble. Um, it got them in trouble back uh, in the wilderness generation. Um, it got them into trouble in the days of Solomon uh, with his intermarriage and like all the problems there. And Ezra comes back and it's like, we're back in the land, but we're still doing the same, the same problems. And so chapters 9 and 10 are devoted to Ezra's prayer of confession in chapter 9. And then the repentance of the people in chapter 10, which is really powerful that Ezra motivates the people to do this. Um, but it also, again, it kind of ends with this anticlimax at the end of Ezra, where the last thing it says is like, these are the people who married foreign women and some of them had, had children. And like, boom, end of Ezra. Like that's, that's rough. Now, it's good that they repented. I think that there's a powerful lesson there. But it seems like all three sections of, the, of Ezra and Nehemiah end with kind of a, kind of a downer. Mm -hmm. And so Ezra 10 also ends with like, kind of abruptly, like, okay, and that's the end of phase two. Um, that uh, Ezra helped them to repent. But it was really costly because of their, because of their sin. Mm -hmm. Anything that you all have to add on the second section there? I think that's one thing the, the lesson to learn from the end of, of Ezra it's a really hard story to read um, and you see the hurt like most of chapter 9 is, is Ezra's prayer um, and so just like really quickly in verse 6 uh, at the beginning of his prayer he says oh my god I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face to you my god for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens and he goes on really through the rest of the chapter praying um, for forgiveness and that and that God would help them and and uh, pardon their iniquity and then chapter 10 is him getting the people to all also make confession and weep for their sins but then the end of that like the last verse like what you mentioned in verse 44 of chapter 10 all these had married foreign women and some of the women had even born children and it's like man that's a really difficult thing to have to do um to to separate a family especially when there's children um but that just kind of shows the the, the pain that sin causes um and so we need to think twice before we get involved in sins um because regardless of what the cost is for repentance confession and repentance is still required um, and I think you see a very real uh, example of that with Ezra, um, which should, again, 
um, kind of go back to us as being teachers, we need to know the law of God because he, he'd stated this before over and over in his law, you shall not intermarry with the people. If the people knew the law of God and did the law of God, they would have never had to pay this, this really big cost, um, but they did. Um, and so that, that's just a lesson for us. Um, God's law is still the final say. Yeah, that's right. And so I think we see that Zerubbabel um, and Ezra, they do accomplish what God set them to do. They finish the temple, even though there's some anticlimax there. Ezra does teach the law and moves the people to repentance, even though it's really sad and really hard. Um, we're going to see something similar to the pattern in Nehemiah. Again, we're skipping forward, but not as much here. Uh, it's 445 uh, when Artaxerxes, again, uh, makes the decree. And one of the beautiful things about Nehemiah is uh, he is not a prophet, a priest, or a king. <laughs> he was the cupbearer to the king. He heard about the opportunity to go back, and he goes. Um, he's not, he's just kind of an average Joe, if you will. Um, and he goes back and rallies the people to build the wall. Um, I also love chapter three. There's a whole bunch of names in chapter three, but it shows how every, every part <laughs> of the people who are there are helping. Um, everybody's pitching in, and there's a lot of cool points to make. We're not gonna study it in, in depth right now, but uh, chapter three can be really encouraging. You notice the details. Uh, Jonathan? Yeah, I just wanna point out one thing, because chapter three is, was one of those chapters, um, I think that's valuable to see when you look really in depth what's going on, because a lot of times you see these these list chapters and you kind of like skip over them in the Old Testament, because you're like, ah, oh, it's a bunch of names, and a bunch of things, and let's get on back to the story. Um, but it's really cool. One thing that I do want to say is all of these people are, are charged to build the wall. None of them are construction workers that are mentioned. Um, but you got people like goldsmiths and, and uh, people that work with perfumes, uh, perfumers and all kinds of things like that, that are doing this work that they're not particularly trained to do. Um, and that kind of gets summarized in the statement in chapter four, which I'm sure you'll mention that the people had a mind to work. And I really love the first six chapters of Nehemiah. It's such a cool story that illustrates even when you're not qualified and when you're few in number, if you're doing God's work and, and putting forth your best effort, God will bless you and good things will happen. It's just really cool. Yeah, amen. And so similar with Zerubbabel here, they, they get the work going, but then there's opposition. There's a lot, a lot of opposition, both from without and from within in Nehemiah's day. Uh, there are still people who are wanting to stop them from working um, but there's also corruption among the people where they're oppressing the poor. Uh, they're, they're not doing what God told them to do. And so it's just amazing that there's an uphill battle uh, this whole time as they're trying to, to rebuild. But by God's grace, um, in, in Nehemiah 6, verse 15, so, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, uh, a little in 52 days. So again, they finish. So really chapters one through six, and then a little bit into chapter seven is all about the walls, but they're not done rebuilding. One of the things about all of this is seeing that, yes, there was a, a focus to rebuild the temple and to teach the law and to build the walls. But all of this really is centering around rebuilding God's people. The, the work is not just having a physical building with some physical walls and having some rules. All of those things are for the benefit of God's people. And that's really the building project of Ezra and Nehemiah is God is getting his people ready for the coming of his son. And 
there's a lot of work that goes into building people. Uh, sometimes it's a lot easier to build a building than it is to, to build up people. And so here we have great examples of leadership, of opposition and overcoming, um, even if there's some anticlimactic things that happen. Um, Ezra shows up again here in the book of Nehemiah. Um, so again, it's interesting to me that Ezra got put with these two parts and at least named for these two parts because Ezra, again, this has only happened maybe about 13 years later uh, in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra himself is still around during this time. Uh, Ezra leads, reads the law. They have kind of a, uh, a scripture reading marathon <laughs> um, in chapter eight. And once again, the people realize their need for repentance. Uh, again, some of the same problems have persisted even after the confession and repentance in the book of Ezra um, and some additional problems. They've let the temple fall into disrepair. And so it, it feels like, again, we're making, you know, one, two steps forward, three steps back. It feels like as you're going through these books and yet they still repent and they commit and say, all right, we're going to, we're going to make this right. We're going to do, do what's right. By the way, uh, Ezra 9 and Nehemiah 9 are two powerful prayers of confession. If you're ever looking for just good examples of prayers of confession, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, and it's kind of funny it worked out this way, Daniel 9 are three powerful prayers of confession from all around the same time, more or less, of history. In chapters 11 and 12, they need to fill the city. Uh, they've got walls up, but they need people to live in it again. So it talks about filling the city. And all the first 12 chapters of Nehemiah really all happen within about the span of a year. Then chapter 13 comes along. This is about 12 years later. And, and again, Nehemiah ends on a downer. <laughs> they have not kept the commitments that they made in repentance in chapters 9 and 10. Nehemiah has to kind of come back in and pretty forcefully get them to repent. And he does. He cleanses them again. But wow, uh, the work is never really done. And uh, it's, a, again, kind of an anticlimax, kind of a, an ending on a, on a downer. But I think that helps us to connect these three sections that we're really, we're waiting for the Messiah. We're waiting for God to come and to renew the hearts of his people through Jesus. Uh, that's what these books are all anticipating and looking forward to. Um, I'm curious as to y'all's applications from this. I know we're about out of time, but I just wanted to emphasize three things that stood out to me from this. One is that God keeps his promises, even over hundreds of years, and even when it doesn't seem exciting to us in the ways we had hoped for, God keeps his promises. Again, the primary work of God is people. They're rebuilding the temple, they're rebuilding the walls, but God wants people. That is his, that really, that's ultimately his temple today, it's his people. Um, and God uses ordinary people to accomplish his work. Um, none of these people were overly qualified for some of the tasks that they had to do. Now, Ezra was a trained priest and scribe, but Nehemiah, I mean, he's a cupbearer. He wasn't a construction guy. He wasn't, uh, you know, over a bunch of people, but he used the opportunity and God can use us to, if we're willing to, uh, to give our lives to him. Any other thoughts or comments that you'll have on that? One thing that I think is really interesting about Nehemiah, the ending of Nehemiah um, is, is kind of sad because you have Ezra and Nehemiah working so hard um, to get the people back, um, and then they, they don't. Um, and Nehemiah ends, verse 30 and 31, 
He says, thus I cleanse from, uh, from them every foreign thing, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites for each his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for their first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. And so he kind of says, like, I think this is a really powerful example for us. Nehemiah ends his book by saying, look, I've done all that I could, and they still wouldn't listen. God, please, please remember that. And, you know, sometimes it can be discouraging working when you work with people um, and, and trying to help people and you do all that you can and they still just don't want to do what God wants them to do. Um, you know, we need to realize that that could very well happen. But in those situations, God remembers our good and he will remember our good. Um, so we just need to keep persevering and doing good. And if I could summarize uh, Nehemiah, like his character in, in like one phrase or one word it is he was just a man of perseverance. Um, regardless of what happened, whether it was pe- his own people opposing him or people outside opposing him or different obstacles um, that could have come up outside of those, uh, he just kept putting his head down and doing what God told him to do and moving forward. And I think he's just a really, really cool character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's powerful to think about. So that's a, a very short treatment of these two books of the Old Testament, but it really helps us fill in that fuzzy gap <laughs> um, after the captivity and uh, getting ready for Jesus, we now have a much better idea of how the people of God got back on their feet and the people that God used to, to accomplish that. Thank you. Thank you, Nathan. That, uh, Nathan Stephen. That really <laughs> that's really funny because Nathan is my brother's name. And so my parents would always call me Nathan growing up. Oh, that's cool. So, okay. I fit right I into the family. I know my brother, but I, I feel right at home when you call me Nathan. So. Oh, there you, go. there you go. Thanks. Good job. Very good. I appreciate that. All right. Well, that's all that we had for um, this afternoon. Um, Thank you guys for your comments, for your questions um, on this topic. Um, If you guys have any other uh, in our audience, you have any other books or different things that you'd like us to discuss, maybe outline, go through the big picture of those books, we'd be happy to do that. Or any other questions that you have um, uh, about the Bible, certain verses, anything that's difficult that you'd like us to discuss, uh, we'd be happy to do that. Um, You can go to BibleQuest.org, submit your question. Uh, to us, and we'd be happy to talk about those things on our next show uh, next Tuesday. But we'll look forward to seeing you all then, Lord willing.